Israel was a nation, they agreed to a set of covenant laws in Mount Sinai as part of a special contract with Yah. It meant that they were to be his people, and he would in turn be their Elohim. Now, as with all contracts, which usually involve at least two parties, in this case Yah and Israel, both parties were bound by certain agreements which were spelled out in the contract or covenant. The ancient people of Israel were told that if they obeyed the laws of the covenant, they would have Yah's protection and be showered with many blessings. If they disobeyed, they would receive punishment and suffer many curses. Sadly, our ancestors chose the latter, and following that fateful decision, the nation of Israel was thereafter thrust into a series of events that eventually resulted in a time of trouble and punishment whose ill effects are still felt to this very day. Before long, ancient Israel experienced a civil war and eventually split into two kingdoms, with the tribe of Judah leading a two-tribe kingdom to the south and ten tribes forming a kingdom to the north. After a period of self-rule, the independence of the northern kingdom was threatened by the Assyrians. We get that account in the book of 2 Kings. Hoshea, son of Elah, began to rule over Israel in the twelfth year of King Ahaz's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria nine years. He did what was evil in Yah's sight, but not to the same extent as the kings of Israel who ruled before him. King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked King Hoshea, so Hoshea was forced to pay heavy tribute to Assyria. But Hoshea stopped paying the annual tribute and conspired against the king of Assyria by asking King Saul of Egypt to help him shake free of Assyria's power. When the king of Assyria discovered his treachery, he seized Hoshea and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the entire land, and for three years he besieged the city of Samaria. Finally, in the ninth year of King Hoshea's reign, Samaria fell, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. They were settled in colonies in Halah, along the banks of the Habor River in Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. This disaster came upon the people of Israel because they worshipped other deities. They sinned against Yahweh Elohim, who had brought them safely out of Egypt and had rescued them from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They had followed the practices of the pagan nations Yah had driven from the land ahead of them, as well as the practices the kings of Israel had introduced. This gives us a good picture of why the northern kingdom was punished by being exiled to Assyria. But later, Judah, which was the only kingdom left, also ended up doing that which was not right in the sight of Yah. Second Kings chapter 24 informs us that the last independent king of Judah, Jehoiakim, reigned for eight years, practicing evil before Yah unleashed the forces of Babylon on the kingdom of Judah, which ended in that nation being led away captive as well. Seventy long years of captivity was experienced in Babylon, and the ancient Israelites witnessed the fall of that empire and the rise of the next. After the seventy years had expired, the new Persian king, Cyrus the Great, allowed the people of Judah to return to their homeland and rebuild. This event was recorded in the scriptures. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, Yah fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put his proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says, Yah, the Elohim of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. 
He has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of Yah, the Elohim of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your Elohim be with you. Wherever this Hebrew remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of Elohim in Jerusalem. That second temple was indeed rebuilt, and it existed until the time of Yeshua, who prophesied his ultimate destruction. Sadly, many of the people of Judah rejected Yeshua, as they failed to understand the many prophecies and types that pointed to him, such as those found in Exodus 12 verse 5, Zechariah 13 verse 6, Genesis 49 verse 10, Isaiah 7 verse 14, Micah 5 verse 2, and so many others. Yeshua highlighted their rejection of him in several parables. A notable one is the parable of the evil farmers, which can be found in Matthew 21 verses 33 to 46. And in it, Yeshua reveals what the rejection of the nation he was sent to would result in. Following the fulfillment of the parable of the evil farmers, wherein they murdered the son of the vineyard owner, that being Yeshua, and after the rejection of his emissaries, the fate of Judah and Jerusalem was pretty much sealed. Yeshua prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and pointed to the future of the people of Judah, which was right in line with the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out, and those out in the country should not return to the city. For those will be days of Elohim's vengeance, and the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. For there will be disaster in the land and great anger against this people. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. This particular prophecy, as you can see, stretched throughout time, with Jerusalem being controlled by the Romans who were the first to march on her following Yeshua's prediction. Roman rule lasted for hundreds of years after the initial siege. Then the Romans eventually lost hold of Jerusalem to the Muslims. And thereafter, various caliphates controlled Jerusalem until the time of the Crusades. And during this long period, popes allied with European kings to fight against Muslims. The Crusades were first and foremost an expression of papal authority against the enemies of the church. The First Crusade was preached by a pope, Pope Urban II, in France in the year 1095. With reference to the Muslims and their advance in Europe and in Jerusalem, I think the Christians in Europe believed that the Islamic message of Muhammad uh, was against uh, and contradictory to what the Christians were saying. They were worried that this idea could possibly overrun the Christian idea. Pope Urban conceived this idea. It's not a sin if you kill non-Christians, if you kill non-believers in our faith. And so he made this deal that if you go and fight in the Holy Land, you will be forgiven all your past sins. A knight could sin as much as he liked. And simply by going to the Holy Land, 
He had been given his passport to heaven. And that was an extremely attractive deal. And combined with that, he could win fame, he could win glory, and he could come back with the treasures of the Near East. These are the things that drew knights in their tens of thousands to go on crusade. The bloodletting of the crusaders spread throughout the Islamic lands. Everybody heard stories about the massacre of unarmed individuals. It created this intense rage amongst Muslims. In a sense, it resulted in a new kind of Muslim crusade, a desire to raise an army to go back to liberate Jerusalem from the crusaders as an act of piety on the part of Muslims. I don't think any of those young men, either Christian or Muslim, could possibly have imagined that their struggle could possibly still be playing itself out a thousand years later in the area that we call the Middle East today. Following the Crusades, control of Jerusalem went from Mongol warriors to Egyptian Mamelukes to the Ottoman Empire, who surrendered Jerusalem to the British on December 9th, 1917. That event led to the modern-day circumstance, which allowed for the establishment of an Israeli state, which is currently occupied by Gentile posers pretending to be the people of Israel as stated in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9. As prophesied by Yeshua, Jerusalem would be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. That means the Gentiles would be in Jerusalem, trampling it down till the very last day when Yeshua comes. In other words, the people in that land calling themselves Israel are really Gentiles. But let one of them tell you himself. In his book, the 13th tribe, Arthur Kessler, himself a so-called Jew, writes in the very first chapter, About the time when Charlemagne was crowned emperor of the West, the eastern confines of Europe between the Caucasus and the Volga were ruled by a Jewish state known as the Khazar Empire. At the peak of its power, from the 7th to the 10th centuries AD, it played a significant part in shaping the destinies of medieval and consequently of modern Europe. The country of the Khazars, a people of Turkish stock, occupied a strategic key position at the vital gateway between the Black Sea and the Caspian, where the great eastern powers of the period confronted each other. It acted as a buffer protecting Byzantium against invasions by the lusty barbarian tribesmen of the northern steppes. But equally, or even more important, both from the point of view of Byzantine diplomacy and of European history, is the fact that the Khazar armies effectively blocked the Arab avalanche in its most devastating early stages and thus prevented the Muslim conquest of Eastern Europe. It is perhaps not surprising, given these circumstances, that in 732, after a resounding Khazar victory over the Arabs, the future Emperor Constantine V married a Khazar princess. In due time, their son became the Emperor Leo IV, known as Leo the Khazar. Ironically, the last battle in the war, AD 737, ended in a Khazar defeat. But by that time, the impetus of the Muslim holy war was spent. The caliphate was rocked by internal dissensions, and the Arab invaders retraced their steps across the Caucasus without having gained a permanent foothold in the north, whereas the Khazar
Khazars became more powerful than they had previously been. A few years later, probably AD 740, the king, his court, and the military ruling class embraced the Jewish faith and Judaism became the state religion of the Khazars. No doubt their contemporaries were as astonished by this decision as modern scholars were when they came across the evidence in the Arab, Byzantine, Russian, and Hebrew sources. What is in dispute is the fate of the Jewish Khazars after the destruction of their empire in the 12th or 13th century. On this problem, sources are scant, but various late medieval Khazar settlements are mentioned in the Crimea, in the Ukraine, in Hungary, Poland, and Lithuania. The general picture that emerges from these fragmentary pieces of information is that of a migration of Khazar tribes and communities into those regions of Eastern Europe, mainly Russia and Poland, where, at the dawn of the modern age, the greatest concentrations of Jews were found. This has led several historians to conjecture that a substantial part, and perhaps the majority of Eastern Jews, and hence of world Jewry, might be of Khazar and not of Semitic origin. The large majority of surviving Jews in the world is of Eastern European, and thus perhaps mainly of Khazar, origin. If so, this would mean that their ancestors came not from the Jordan, but from the Volga, not from Canaan, but from the Caucasus, once believed to be the cradle of the Aryan race, and that genetically they are more closely related to the Hun, Uyghur, and Magyar tribes than to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did you mean in the title of your book that the Jewish people had been invented? Uh, it, it isn't a provocation. I meant it. Uh, I think that uh, the Jewish people was invented. Uh, like uh, the French people, like the Italian people. You see, to build nations in the modern times, historians started to build uh, to the past uh, peoples. In, uh, between these peoples, I think that in the second half of the 19th century, the Jewish people was invented. Shlomo Sand, an Israeli emeritus professor of history at Tel Aviv University, wrote a book called The Invention of the Jewish People, in which he agrees with a lot of what Arthur Kessler brought forth concerning the Khazarian origins of the so-called Jews. Shlomo Sand, who is himself a so-called Jew, points out that the ancestry of most contemporary Jews stems mainly from outside the land of Israel, and they are descended from converts, and that mass conversions to Judaism occurred among the Khazars in the Caucasus, Berber tribes in North Africa, and in the Himyarite kingdom of the Arabian Peninsula. Yeshua said that a certain people would say that they are Jews but are not, and those people are the Khazars and their descendants who are among us today. And the fact that many sources can be found among these people which proclaim their true origins is astounding. On page 226 of his book, Sand writes, Another early source attesting to the collective conversion of the Khazars is a Karate one. In about 973 CE, one Yaakov Kerkeseni, a scholarly traveler who was quite familiar with the regions around Khazaria, wrote a commentary in Aramaic on the verse, Elohim shall enlarge Japheth. Genesis 9:27. This is what the words mean. He will dwell in the tents of Shem which grant him a favor and advantage. And some commentators think that this refers to the Khazars, who became Jews. What is interesting about the quote he cites and agrees with is the fact that they know and believe the prophecy concerning a people who would pretend to be 
of the tribe of Judah, but are truly Gentiles. And they base this on Genesis 9, verse 27, which coincides with Revelation 2, verse 9, and 3, verse 9. What's more, most of the world is buying into this deception. And for the present-day Khazarians, that's probably reason to celebrate. Getting back to Arthur Kessler on this subject, he writes, The Jews of our times fall into two main divisions, Sephardim and Ashkenazim. The Sephardim are descendants of the Jews who since antiquity had lived in Spain until they were expelled at the end of the 15th century and settled in the countries bordering on the Mediterranean, the Balkans, and to a lesser extent in Western Europe. In the 1960s, the number of Sephardim was estimated at 500,000. The Ashkenazim, at the same period, numbered about 11 million. Thus, in common parlance, Jew is practically synonymous with Ashkenazi Jew. It should be mentioned that the Ashkenaz of the Bible refers to a people living somewhere in the vicinity of Mount Ararat in Armenia. The name occurs in Genesis 10 verse 3 and 1 Chronicles 1 verse 6 as one of the sons of Gomar, who was a son of Japheth. Ashkenaz is also a brother of Togarma and a nephew of Magog, whom the Khazars, according to King Joseph, claimed as their ancestor. But worse was to come, for Ashkenaz is also named in Jeremiah 51 verse 27, where the prophet causes people and their allies to rise and destroy Babylon. Call thee upon the kingdoms of Ararat, Midi, and Ashkenaz. This passage was interpreted by the famous Saadia Gaon, spiritual leader of Oriental Jewry in the 10th century as a prophecy relating to his own times. Babylon symbolized the caliphate of Baghdad, and the Ashkenaz who were to attack it were either the Khazars themselves or some allied tribe. So, as we have seen from the words of Arthur Kessler, historically, the Khazars and their descendants do not identify with Shem. But, rather, they identify with Japheth. And that is proved out in their own writings. This is a major fulfillment of scripture. All that being said, what happened to the real people of Judah in 70 AD, following the siege and destruction of Jerusalem? The ones who weren't captured by the Romans and killed or enslaved escaped. But where did they go? First, you have to understand that whenever trouble arose, such as severe famine in the land, our forefathers and mothers were known to migrate in order to avoid it. There are three famous accounts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob heading south when famine struck at different periods in each of their lifetimes. Abraham and Jacob went all the way south to Egypt, but Isaac went as far as Gerar. And let's not forget Joseph and Mary, who also fled south to Egypt with Yeshua to escape trouble. These acts are all somewhat prophetic, as they are a major clue as to what happened to the people of Judah following the destruction of Jerusalem. In his book, From Babylon to Timbuktu, author and historian Rudolf R. Windsor, a true Hebrew, writes, In the year 65 BC, the Roman armies under General Pompey captured Jerusalem. In 70 AD, General Vespasian and his son, Titus, put an end to the Jewish state with great slaughter. During the period of the military governors of Palestine, many outrages and atrocities were committed against
against the residue of the people. During the period from Pompeii to Julius, it has been estimated that over one million Jews fled into Africa, fleeing from Roman persecution and slavery. The slave markets were full of black Jewish slaves. After the fall of the Carthaginian metropolis in North Africa, Roman power became dominant in the Barbary states. The pagans and the Romans attacked the Jews indiscriminately, both the Jewish soldiers and the uninvolved peaceful population. As a result of this merciless attack, many Jews fled to those parts of Northwest Africa known as Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Mauritania. Many other Jews fled to the areas where Rome did not have any jurisdiction. This was to the region of the South, the Sahara Desert, and the Sudan. Windsor also tells us on page 86 and 87 that more descendants of Judah fled to the west coast of Africa in the 7th century after the Visigoths assumed power and began to suppress Hebrew customs with forced baptisms to Christianity. Windsor cites many credible sources to make his points. Among them is Joseph J. Williams, a 20th century historian who, in his 1930 book, Hebrewisms of West Africa, wrote, Whatever may be thought of the more or less mythological traditions connected with the earliest Jews in North Africa, it is now practically an established fact that a Jewish nation, Jewish at least in faith and perhaps too in origin, long held sway south of the Sahara. Now, while Joseph Williams, who was Caucasian and Jesuit, does provide meaningful and factual info that pertains to the descendants of the ancient Hebrew Israelites, he does so with a degree of reluctance. And the book is written through the lens of what I would call a racist and white supremacist viewpoint. Because despite all the evidence of the true descendants of Judah and Israel as a whole being black, Williams and his sources try to brush that aside and conclude that white Jews, who they blindly claim are the originals, must have somehow lost their color by interbreeding with blacks who thereafter assimilated their culture, for which there is absolutely no evidence. That said, Hebrewisms of West Africa is full of valuable information as regards the wanderings of the Hebrews following the flight from Judea, and it also gives great insight into the further scattering of our ancestors, as certain customs practiced in West Africa by our Hebrew ancestors found their way to islands like Jamaica, Haiti, the Virgin Islands, and many other places following the slave trade. So, having fled their homeland as prophesied, there our ancestors were charting new territory in Africa, and trying to carry on their Hebrew traditions in a new land, but not as savages or uncivilized barbarians. In fact, Rudolf Windsor tells us in his book, The black Jews had an advantage over the African tribes. They carried their culture, history, laws, and written records with them. This assured them a constant precedent for the development of a higher social organization. Because of the stability of the black Jewish culture, the Jews were not absorbed into the autoxinous or native population. In fact, the Jews absorbed some of the native tribes. The Jews made use of every opportunity. They were an industrious and skillful people. In the Jewish Ghanaian states were found kings, princes, governors, generals, secretaries, treasurers, revenue agents, judges, architects, engineers, doctors, jewelers, sculptors, masons, carpenters, painters of art, goldsmiths, leather workers, potters, armorers, saddlers, blacksmiths, agriculturists, etc. The survivors of the Roman siege of Jerusalem were able to flee that terror and carry on in a new land. 
but the relative peace our ancestors were afforded by escaping to Africa was broken by the Arab slave trade, which affected not only Hebrews, but men, women, and children from many other peoples that were usually of the lowest classes. The Eastern Arab slave trade, in particular, involved women and young girls, and a strict ratio of two women for each man was maintained. The Arab slave trade, as horrible as it was, eventually gave way to something much worse with the arrival of the Portuguese. Portugal broke from Arab rule somewhere between the 12th and 13th centuries and slowly rose to power. Because of this small European country, slavery would soon go from including people of lower classes from different ethnicities to being forced mainly on so-called blacks from the tribe of Judah. In the early 15th century, Portuguese shipbuilding in Lisbon and Porto adapted to the times and the result was the Caravel, a light and fast aerodynamic vessel that allowed Portuguese mariners to travel south along Africa's Atlantic coast in order to reach the gold-producing regions of sub-Saharan West Africa. After establishing several trading posts and colonies in the region, other markets began to open up, such as the lucrative commerce in India, and overseas expansion resulted from Portugal's many trade networks. The Portuguese became heavily active in slave trading in Africa around 1445, after they discovered the Cape Verde Islands and settled there. Slavery was used to fuel their expanding empire, and slave trafficking became integral to their enterprise. When it became apparent that slavery was big business, a law had to be created to protect it. Thus, the sitting pope, Pope Nicholas V, issued a papal bull, the strongest command of a pope, titled Romanos Pontifex, Latin for the Roman Pontiff. He issued the bull to King Alfonso V of Portugal on January 8, 1455, and it allowed the king to, and I quote, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and other enemies of Christ wheresoever placed, and the kingdoms, dukedoms, principalities, dominions, possessions, and all movable and immovable goods whatsoever held and possessed by them, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery. This was basically a license and go-ahead for King Alfonso, who alone was personally named in the papal bull, to send vessels to search out, capture, vanquish, subdue, and enslave Hebrews, particularly the people of Judah, whose existence, kingdom, and territory they were well aware of. The people of Judah were their primary concern, in fact, and they are the so-called Negroes who were rounded up and scattered throughout the four corners of the earth just as Yeshua said they would be, back in Luke 21, verse 24. They will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. This also coincides with the curse of Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. For Yah will scatter you among all the nations, from one end of the earth to the other. When I say they were aware of who Judah was, I'm not conjecturing. Proof is in the record. If you do a Google search and type in a new and accurate map of Negro land, a list of results will pop up. As of the date of this recording, Swain.com still works. Click on it and a page will open up showing a 1747 map of West Africa by 18th century English map engraver Emmanuel Bowen. And then click on the image of the map itself. Move your mouse pointer to the area that is now present-day Ghana 
and click on it to enlarge the map. Click it again, and you'll clearly see that what is now called Ghana was once the slave coast, which the map maker labeled the Kingdom of Judah, dropping the H at the end. This is where many of the people of Judah were shipped from, like sardines in a can. Yet today, the elites and their paid professors would have you believe that we are Africans or Hamites, when in truth we are Shemites. They themselves know this to be a fact. In Zondervan's Compact Bible Dictionary, for instance, the definition for Ham reads as follows. Ham, the youngest son of Noah, born probably 96 years before the flood, and one of eight persons to live through the flood. He became the progenitor of the dark races, not the Negroes, but the Egyptians, Ethiopians, Libyans, and Canaanites. They say not the Negroes, because Shem is the progenitor or father of the Negroes. Though both lines are comprised of so-called blacks, Africans and so-called African-Americans are not the same. We are Hebrews and they are Hamites. But there are still many Hebrews in Africa, however. But getting back to our history, despite the papal bull pertaining solely to the king of Portugal, that didn't stop other empires and nations from getting in on the action. Over the centuries, Spain, Britain, France, the Dutch, Canada, the United States, and many African countries participated in the transatlantic slave trade. And this fulfills certain prophecies, such as Psalm 83, which I urge you to read with your eyes open. And Joel 3, verse 6, You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, so they could take them far from their homeland. The sad fact is, Psalm 83 is still in full effect as our collective enemies are still conspiring to keep us in the dark as concern our true identity, and they continue to miseducate us. They really mean to wipe out the memory of the people of Israel from the face of the earth. But Yah is not going to let that happen. And this documentary is merely one step toward that effort. The present situation we are in is solely due to our forefathers failing to keep the covenant law of Yah, and it falls to us in this generation to right that wrong. And Yah said that this would happen in our day. But I will spare some, for some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the lands and nations. Then in the nations where you have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me. How I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. And they will know that I am Yah. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. You see, we, the people of Israel, are not born deserving of that name. We are born as Jacobs, or supplanters and schemers. But to truly earn the right to be called Israel, we, like our father Jacob, will have to be faithful and wrestle with Yah until we are overcomers. Those of us who do this will be the ones who will truly be called Israel and form the remnant of the kingdom. Having said that, please don't let this be the end of your search for truth on this subject. Continue to dig for it and pray that Yah gives you discernment, since a great deal of deception is out there regarding this topic. And spread the word to your friends and family, and he or she that has ears to hear and eyes to see among them will get it. I hope that this brief history has enlightened you and brought a degree of understanding as concerns our past, which goes well beyond Africa. The so-called Negroes, Blacks, and African Americans are actually the descendants of the people of 
Judah. And that is something they don't want us to know.